Hear now this reading from Luke 9. Once again, Jesus went away to pray, this time taking Peter, John, and James. They climbed a mountainside to a place of solitude. Jesus began to pray. His disciples tried to stay awake, but their eyes grew heavier and heavier until finally they fell asleep. As Jesus prayed, his face changed and his clothes became dazzlingly white. Suddenly two figures appeared and began to talk with Jesus. It was Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and began talking about the prophecy that Jesus was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John began to wake up and saw the scene unfolding before them, Jesus' glory and the two people standing by him. Peter saw that Moses and Elijah were about to leave, so he said to Jesus, Rabbi, how good it is for us to be here. Let's set up three monuments, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter didn't really know what he was saying. While he spoke, a cloud overshadowed and enveloped them, and the disciples were frightened. From the cloud around them came a voice which said, This is my own, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, they looked around and saw no one but Jesus, standing alone. The group was left speechless and said nothing of what they had seen to anyone. This is one of our sacred stories. Please hear this reading from Exodus. When Moses came back down from Mount Sinai, he carried the two stone tablets of the covenant. However, he was not aware that the skin on his face was glowing radiant because he had been speaking with God. When Aaron and the other Israelites saw Moses' face was shining, they were unnerved, too afraid to come near him. It was only when Moses called them that Aaron and the other community leaders approached Moses so that he could talk to them about what had happened. After that, all of the Israelites gathered around. Moses shared with them the teachings he had received from Yahweh while he was on Mount Sinai. But still, they were afraid. So after he had finished speaking, Moses covered his face with a veil. This became his habit. Whenever he entered Yahweh's presence, he would take off the veil. But when he came back out to the Israelites to teach them what he had been taught... They would be unnerved by the way his face shone, so he would put the veil over his face again until the next time he spoke with God. This is one of our sacred stories. A reading from 2 Corinthians. Now consider this. If the cold dead religion of the law carved on those tablets of stone came with so much glory that the Israelites couldn't even bear to look at Moses' shining face, even as it was fading. How much greater will be the glory of the direct presence of the living spirit? 
If the ministry of the kind of religion that condemns the world has so much splendor, how much greater will be the splendor of the ministry that restores the world and sets it right? Certainly, if you were to compare the two, the candlelight of one looks like darkness in the sunlight of the other. And if the makeshift arrangement of the first impressed us, how much more will we be impacted by that which will endure? So, nourished by a hope like this, we are very bold in what we say and do. We are not like Moses who covered his face with a veil to keep the Israelites from having to look at its unnerving radiance, even as it faded. Their minds became dull as stones, and even today, when the words of those tablets are read, the same veil remains. But Christ can remove the veil. Even today, when those words are read, a veil covers their understanding. But whenever anyone turns directly to our God, the veil is removed. And when we say God, we do not mean a piece of dead law or chiseled stone, but spirit. And wherever the spirit of God is, there is liberation. Now all of us, with our faces unveiled, reflect God's glory like a mirror. We grow brighter and brighter as we are being transformed into that same image we reflect, into the image of Christ. That is the work of God's Spirit. Therefore, since we are on this journey through God's mercy, we don't give up when we're discouraged. Instead, we renounce everything we've always hidden in shame. We don't use deception or trickery. We don't pollute God's word with our own agenda. Instead, we speak the truth plainly so that anyone who wants to can see and judge for themselves in the sight of God. This is one of our sacred teachings. Moses reached the end of his long descent, overjoyed at the prospect of sharing his experience with his family. For 40 days, he had been sitting in the splendor of the divine, eyes fully opened to capital R, reality, sustained in ways he didn't even know he could be sustained. For those 40 days, he slipped into eternity, and they passed like the blink of an eye, In his arms, he carried two tablets of stone, a summary of what he had realized, the implications of the truth he had experienced for his people in their place and at that time, a testament to the people's relationship with the truth. And in his heart, he carried a glow, a spark of warmth that stuck with him, a piece of that divine flame that had warmed him for 40 days. And finally, he caught a glimpse of the camp and felt a twinge of anxiety. The last time he was in this position, feeling the same thing, he had returned to a camp of people who had forgotten themselves entirely. He was so overcome by anger in a moment, his experience was forgotten. And the testimony on the tablets destroyed. He hoped with his whole warm heart that this time would be different that this time they might listen. Some people saw him in the distance and began to draw near to the foot of the mountain. They looked excited to have him back, and Moses took this as a good sign. But as he approached, to his confusion, they started to back away. 
and by the time he reached the grounds, they stood watching at a distance. He actually had to call them over. And slowly they came, the elders of the camp, led by his brother Aaron. Aaron's familiar face was tense with apprehension. Moses, he began cautiously, what happened? At this invitation to share, Moses relaxed. So they did want to hear about his experience after all. My family, I have just experienced the most incredible... And though he'd rehearsed this moment, even after the burning bush and after the exodus, after his first experience on Sinai, he still struggled to find the word for exactly what he had experienced. A presence, a truth, an enlightenment, a deity... God didn't seem to quite cover it, especially given how they were used to thinking about the gods of Egypt, but it seemed like the best word he had. Whatever it was, he he wanted them to experience it too. Our God has this to say, no, Moses, Aaron interrupted, perturbed. Your face. What happened to your face? And Moses was confused. They had to find a basin of water into which he could look to see it. And Moses recognized that familiar glow, and he was delighted. He had brought it with him. It was inside him, and now he could share it. But every time he tried to share it, they shrunk away. Maybe, they suggested, maybe if you put a veil over your face, then we could pay better attention. But the glow is the point. Moses protested. Anything I tell you, it's only so you can experience that glow for yourselves. Right, sure, they said, but it's so bright, uh, and it makes, us, um, it makes us uncomfortable. If you just tell us what we should do, we'll do it, but please don't make us have to look at that light. <laughs> Moses knew that what they meant was, please don't make us have to look at ourselves in that light. But this was no use. He taught and he told stories and he tried to make them realize that if they experienced God for themselves, then they would know what to do. But they wouldn't. Just tell us what to do, they insisted. And Moses conceded. And as he did, his glow faded. Once I was part of a conversation on race and power dynamics. The facilitator was black, but most of the other participants were white, like myself. And our main question we kept asking was, what can we do? But to our frustration and our benefit, the leader refused to tell us what to do. He suggested that perhaps racial reconciliation looked more like a 12-step program than a set of instructions. It was a way to come to terms with our addiction to supremacy to hear the voices of the oppressed, to honestly lean into relationships and be transformed by them. And it was only then, grounded in experience of our own, liberated from our sense of supremacy, that we would really know what to do. Anything else would fall short. The point and purpose of all religion is to bring us into direct contact with the spirit of love and to be transformed. This is a special day in the church calendar. 
It's Transfiguration Sunday. And as you heard Claire read, this is the day we celebrate the story of Jesus gloriously transformed on a mountaintop, shining as bright as the sun with the radiance of the Spirit, made beautiful in the company of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. It's a story that's rich with symbolism and references and poetic nuances to help the author paint a picture of the role they believed Christ is playing in cosmic history. But if we were to leave it there, I think we'd miss the point. We would miss the essential truth that every story about Jesus is in some way a story about us. The story of Jesus' transfiguration paves the way for the story of our own transfiguration. And it helps us imagine the day when we, too, will burn with the brightness of the divine presence. I heard an interview recently with a professor at Yale who is at once a Christian pastor and the faculty advisor for Yale's Secular Humanist Society. At one of their monthly meetings, to his surprise, or at most of his mon- their monthly meetings, to his surprise, all the students wanted to talk about was Jesus. Eventually, he insisted, we have to talk about something else. But the group resisted and said, no, I think Jesus is the great humanizer. The teachings of Jesus help me to become more fully human. The story of Jesus, of the transfiguration, is the story of one made fully human. And the story issues an inherent invitation for us, too, to become fully human. Because the flame of God's Spirit flickers in every one of us, waiting to be fanned until we too shine with God's radiance. Within every one of us, there is an energy that can transform our suffering and the suffering of the world into something meaningful, something beautiful, something good. And what we need to do is learn to let go and let it burn. Abba Lot was an ancient desert father, and he went to see Abba Joseph and said to him, Abba, as far as I can, I say my little office, I fast a little, I pray, I meditate, I live in peace as far as I can, and I purify my thoughts. What else am I to do? And Abba Joseph, an old man, stood up and stretched his hands toward the heavens, and his fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to him, If you will, you can become all flame. On another occasion, a disciple asked her master what the difference was between knowledge and enlightenment. And from her wisdom, the master replied, When you have knowledge, you use a torch to show the way. When you are enlightened... You become a torch. Like Moses climbing down the mountain, or Jesus climbing up the mountain, our faces too can glow with the brightness of God's presence. A presence that moves us into a dark and hurting reality and shines a light in which all things are revealed to be beautiful and beloved. This is indeed the telos, the purpose of life, to become like Christ, to become fully human. 
Or as Paul puts it, now all of us with our faces unveiled reflect God's glory like a mirror. We grow brighter and brighter as we are being transformed into the same image we reflect, the image of Christ. This is the work of God's Spirit. And this is the story you and I are living. But if you know anything about the nature of story, you know that there are characters, there are things those characters want, and then there are obstacles. The character must overcome to get what they want. And in the Moses story this morning, the characters are clear, and what he wants is clear, but there is this dark turn as the people shrink away from the mountain, because there's just something so unnerving about that glow. There was something that challenged them with the unknown, with the reality that there may be things bigger than themselves going on. They didn't like the way they looked in the light of that glow. It would make everyone happier, Moses, if you would just put a veil over that. Go ahead and just paraphrase what God said to you, and then we'll have what we need. And from this energy was born the religion of the law, a religion that Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, still battles even centuries later. Certainly, if you compare the two, he writes, the candlelight of the one looks like darkness in the sunlight of the other. If the makeshift arrangement of the first impressed us, how much more will we be impacted by that which will endure? In other words, a list of things to do does not give you what you need unless, you, unless those things facilitate letting go of your own flesh, of your own ego, and turning directly to stare into the face of the one who loves the world. The poet Awadi of Carmen was sitting on his porch one night, bent over a vessel. The Sufi, Shams-e-Tabrizi, happened to pass by. What are you doing? he asked the poet. I'm contemplating the moon in this bowl of water, was his reply. Well, unless you've broken your neck, why don't you just look up at the moon? Likewise, the Buddha once said, my teachings are a finger that points to the moon But do not confuse the finger with the moon. To do so, to focus on the finger or the bowl of water, that's what Paul calls makeshift religion. And makeshift religion is based on nothing more than a particular person or group's perception of an experience with the Spirit in a particular place and time. But we try to pass it off as something eternally true, some kind of divine law. Reality is too much for you, it says better let me interpret. And it's far easier to control and to manipulate and to manage. But religion is only as good as how well it points beyond itself, directing us to our own experience of the truth that transfigures. A Christian mystic once said of the Bible, however good a menu is, it's not good for eating. Our failure to move beyond the menu To look beyond the finger and directly at the moon is something that will hurt us. We and those around us will always suffer. The story plays out every day, but this week it played out on an international stage as the United Methodist Church voted to enforce the full exclusion of LGBTQ siblings, outlawing marriage, ordination, and so on. 
when you confuse what someone said about their experience of the divine thousands of years ago with what the Spirit is saying to us right now, today, people get hurt. When you transplant someone's experience of reality, complete with biases, blind spots, fears, and ego, when you transplant the whole thing, plant, pot, and soil into this moment as though it were eternal law, people suffer. Imprisoning fear wins over the liberating spirit. But where the spirit of God is, there is always liberation. Nadia Boltzweber pastor for the House of All Sinners and Saints in Denver, offered this insightful word of encouragement on Twitter this week. There is God, and there is the church. And the less we confuse those two, the better. The church may reject God's children, but God never does. If you or your family come from a UMC background, I'm sorry for the grief, for the confusion that you must be experiencing this week. And we dare not judge because we know we're capable of the same thing. But I want to say you are loved, and love will win. We must learn to let go of the fear, of the resistance, of the ego and turn boldly towards the truth to look fully into the glow of the moon, to fan the flame of the Spirit within us until we are all flame. The world is dark, and it so needs your glow. We are on the cusp of the season of Lent, a season imagined to help us do that difficult work. On Wednesday, with a ceremony of humility and ashes, the season will begin, and we will set about the difficult work of putting to death the habits and energies that dampen the spirits, dampen the spirit, replacing them with practices and conditions in which the fire might burn more brightly. For 40 days, we stop pretending everything's okay. We put away the celebrations, and we put away the hallelujahs, and we share in Christ's death so that when the season ends, we can rise with him, having been made all flame. We let go of ourselves, we let go of the veil. We let go of the makeshift and look directly at the moon, so that just like Moses, like Jesus, we can shine with the light that heals ourselves and the world. Lent is like the 12-step process in which our addictions can be transformed. And Lent holds something different for each of us with our myriad of unique addictions and veils. And it's only with a great deal of honesty and courage you can discern what this season holds for you. If your intention is to give up chocolate, that's fine, but I really encourage you to dig a little deeper. (laughs) This is your chance to be mindful of what dampens the Spirit's flame in you and replace it with something that fans it. Perhaps for 40 days, instead of escaping into your phone, you sit for 10 minutes of silent mindfulness meditation each day, learning to make peace with that from which you seek to escape. Perhaps instead of consuming a steady diet of media that creates us and them categories, you have lunch once a week for 40 days with someone unlike you and learn more about their story, fostering empathy rather than judgment. 
Perhaps instead of eating thoughtlessly addictive food that leaves you drained and exhausted and craving more, you eat only fresh fruits and vegetables for the next 40 days and see what kind of energy you have to expend on the things that actually give you life. Lent is the winter of the Christian year where the leaves die off so the roots can grow deeper. So this is the moment, and I don't want us to miss it. This is the moment to lean in. During the silence for reflection today, we'll have three minutes on which to reflect on two questions printed in your orders of worship. Two questions that can help spark this discernment. And I understand for those of us who might be unused to silence, three minutes can seem like a long time. That's okay. If you get lost in your thoughts, that is normal. Just let your mind refocus on your breath and refocus on the questions. Every week I enjoy the warmth that radiates off this community. And I walk by the glow I see in each one of you. So Northminster, may we become all flame. Amen.